So this morning I wanted to come back once more to reflect just a little more upon this phenomena we call our mind, our heart, our mind, if we use them interchangeably. And certainly one of the great awakenings, sometimes a rather rude awakening on retreat, is to just more and more appreciate the power of our mind to shape our world, the power of our mind on our sense of well-being or lack of well-being, the way in which moment to moment we are creating worlds that we then find ourselves living in, And, you know, the nature of what our mind can do is often in this sense of extremes that we can have moments when our mind seems to be something of a nightmare and taking us into hell realms that we wouldn't wish upon our worst enemy. And other times our mind can be such, it seems strangely, the same mind, such a source of pleasure and delight. You know, the delights, certainly the meditative delights of calmness, of collectedness, of uh, intimacy, stillness. But also we get other kind of strange sources of pleasure in our minds too, don't we, that are not quite so wise. You know, the times of entertaining our fantasies, we can spend such a long time there entertaining our delights, our plans. And what is even stranger to see sometimes is how we can even find a strange kind of pleasure at times in some of our obsessions. You know, we actually like to rehearse things sometimes or repeat things or feel very, you know, self-righteous about something or, you know, have our long story about our superiority over someone else the heavenly realms and the hell realms and then there's this whole middle ground between those two which I call the swamp (laughs) you know it's the swamp mind where you know you just don't know what's going on you know where there can be fog or meandering thoughts or mind states that feel very cloudy or very disconnected Uh, very confusing and yet the same mind same mind can shine with such clarity such creativity such insight such a sense of care and love and compassion and sensitivity same mind changing shape continually changing shape We see our mind, too, as a kind of vehicle. It's a carrier. It's a carrier of the past. How much our mind carries and stores this long legacy of memories, injuries, unfulfilled wishes, fulfilled wishes, (laughs) all of it carried into the present, often in a way which is also shaping our present in terms of expectation or anxiety you know you think of that even on a subtle level in the practice 
you have a really wonderful day of practice. The next morning, do you wake up totally with a beginner's mind? Not likely. I was like, I'm hoping that wonderful day is surely going to be here again. You know, we have a terrible day of practice. Terrible day of practice. And do we wake up the next morning again with the beginner's mind or not? Or again, are we carrying that history, that past into the present in a way that shapes and also forms the present? We see how we do this kind of like day to day on retreat, even moment to moment, sitting to sitting, walking to walking. We get a sense of how much actually our minds seem quite extraordinary in how much we can remember and how much we carry that. Sometimes our minds just really feel quite boring. You know, we get tired of our minds sometimes. You know that same thought? I really have thought that thought 5,000 times. It's like, why? Why am I thinking this thought again? We're so tired of it. And that there it is again. Sometimes we feel ashamed of our mind. You know, and we find ourselves kind of, you know, being a little bit sort of uptight with someone or judgmental. We feel kind of almost let down that our mind is doing something which is kind of less than we would have wished of ourselves. And sometimes we feel quite inspired. Sometimes we feel quite inspired. The same mind, this landscape, this endlessly changing landscape, that none of us are ever actually going to be without the closest companion in our lives, our most intimate relationship, our most intimate companion, that in a way shapes all of our other relationships. What is this practice about? You know, it is really about knowing this mind, knowing it so well, but it is also how we know it. Do we know it with kindness? Do we know it with generosity, with curiosity, with investigation, with interest? Or do we try to know this mind with demand or insistence or unforgiveness or unkindness or blame? Because if this landscape of our mind is truly to bear fruit and grow into a mind of kindness and compassion, then our way of actually being with this mind can never be separated from that aspiration or goal. You know, it is so clear the way that the path and the goal in this practice can never be separated one from another. You know, if we seek for kindness and generosity and then practice in a way of harshness, what kind of magic do we think would happen that kindness and generosity will come out of that harshness? You know, if we seek for compassion and clarity and yet at the same time engage in the moment in patterns of resistance or blame, how do we imagine we will find that place of compassion. You know, the Buddha once said that this practice is not about taming the mind. It is about training the mind. You know, and for people who are kind of like great um, advocates of choiceless awareness, they feel very kind of grumpy when they hear things like that. You know, because they don't want to think about training the mind. You know, they want to think, I should just sit and whatever happens, you know, is cool. 
But actually there is a whole element within this whole teaching and tradition which is about truly training the mind in the pathways of clarity, the pathways of goodness, the pathways of kindness. And that is not to kind of be dualistic and say, well, then there's no room or no welcome for the times when the mind slips into delusion or anger or ill will. Of course there is. But we learn how to meet those moments with the kindness and the compassion that we mostly value. It's always so interesting to me the way so many people in practice having this close intimacy with their mind really start to regard their mind as something as a problem or as an obstacle, you know, feeling that, you know, I would be a fantastic meditator if I had a different mind. And, and it's so interesting to see why do we do that? Why do we at times make an enemy of our mind? And I think it's really good to break that down and to investigate that. And I think one of the reasons is that our minds seem so unpredictable, don't they? I mean, it's just so unpredictable, this roller coaster, you know, that, you know, a day of calm where we're quite sure we've made great strides in the practice, you know, and finally got somewhere, oh, and the next day, you know, this terrific day of agitation and contractedness, you know, a, 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 a sitting or a period of time of, of real steadiness, you know, and, you know, the mind comes in and measures that, you know, thought comes in and measures that and says, you know, getting somewhere, you know, moving right along here, and then ambushed by a mind storm that seems to come out of nowhere, can be quite still, and then wouldn't you know it, the thought appears that says, oh good, you know, now I'm still. And immediately the stillness sort of disappears. And then the storms end, too. And that can seem equally mysterious. You know that we can be so lost in an obsession or a storm, and then suddenly we realize it's gone. And we would love to know how it went. You know, as if we had some, could find some magical strategy for doing it much quicker. <laughs> and yet there's a mystery about it. It's just somehow there's been a kind of letting go and a release. So the unpredictability, I think, is part of what makes us a little bit uneasy at times with our own minds. We just don't know what's coming next. That also could be quite enlightening, couldn't it? That we just don't know what's coming next. The other part, I think, that sometimes makes us think of the mind as a problem is this, is this convincing nature the convincing nature of many of our thoughts and views, you know, that we can have just something that starts as just a little thought, you know. Oh, that person over there is a bit mindless, you know. No, we're quite sure that's the absolute truth. You know, uh, you know we're, we're not getting anywhere. It's just a thought, isn't it? Then we can be quite convinced. That's so true, you know, and total failure as a meditator, you know, never get anywhere, and all the despair and sense of being disheartened that follows. Even we can, you know, get so convinced and excited about it, an insight, you know, oh, now I see something, ah, you know, now that's the absolute truth, it's never going to change, it's going to be like that forever, it'll change. Mm -hmm. 
this is what, you know, we have a kind of phrase in the meditation world. We call it yogi mind. <laughs> Some of you will be familiar with that phrase, and actually the moment I say it, we'll actually know exactly what I mean. You know, yogi mind. Mm-hmm. In a more classical sense, this is called papancha. And I think this is such a wonderful word to remember because there's no English, proper English translation of this word, papancha. But it is, I think it's a terribly liberating word. Papancha, if I would translate it kind of widely, means the multiplicity of thinking or the proliferation of thinking that distorts and colors our perceptions. It is papancha, that proliferation of thinking, that leads us to create a world, moment to moment, which was quite personal and unique to us. Dependent on our conditioning, our stories, the kind of thoughts that we are entertaining and that are sticking within our mind, the world assumes a color a certain color, a certain shape, a certain belief system is formed. Now, Papancha has different grounds, different bases. One of the bases for Papancha is Vedana or feeling. There is a kind of Papancha that is called Tanha Papancha. It is a proliferation of thinking based upon a pleasant feeling. Could be many in the day. You know, maybe you have a pleasant lunch and, you know, before you know it, you're off in restaurant land thinking about all the pleasant lunches you've ever had in your life. You could have, you know, the sun is shining You know, you could have a whole kind of proliferation of thinking, you know, planning your next vacation in the sun. You're already on the beach. It is tanha papancha, the proliferation of thinking that starts with a particular feeling base of pleasure. Of course, there is also dosa papancha, which is the proliferation of thinking based upon an unpleasant feeling. You know, the pain in your knee and the imaginary trip to the emergency ward. You know? The sound of the lawnmower outside, you know, and that whole construction of a world which is always out to disturb my meditation. Hmm? Uh, a thought, an unpleasant thought about ourselves, you know, kind of judgmental thought about ourselves and the whole stream of thinking about every single instance of failure in our life. It is dosa papancha, the proliferation of thinking based upon feeling. There's a level of papancha which is called ditti papancha, the papancha of views, the papancha of opinions, conclusions, you know, it, it is like if you're a little um, uneasy in a retreat, this is one that we see often on retreats, you know, that someone will come into an interview in the early days and say, you know, 
everybody's so serious here. Everybody's depressed. You know, everybody's kind of, this is a, you know, kind of retirement home for <laughs> those without Prozac. You know, it's, it's like, it's, it, you know, and I could bring somebody in who would say to that person, actually, I'm really enjoying myself. And they'd say, no, you're not. You're deluded. You're actually really unhappy. Look how serious you are, you know. Look how miserable you are. But it is a kind of views about the world, you know, the generalizations we often make, you know, people are like this, you know, you know, or politicians are like this, you know, or, you know, people always do this. It's this kind of proliferation of view which shapes the world. Sometimes it can be negatively and, you know, sometimes positively, you know, but it it's a proliferation of view which shapes our world and... I remember, you know, many years ago, and I, uh, oh, this is a long story, but I'm going to really abbreviate it, but I, I did one of these romantic things, you know, where you go swimming with dolphins, and I'm probably the only person in the world who's ever gone swimming with dolphins and got bitten by a dolphin, you know, so, you know, I had this view, you know, that this was going to be this really romantic, fantastic, uplifting experience, you know, until I got bitten by this dolphin. You know, which is quite extraordinary. This is not supposed to happen when you go swimming with dolphins, right? So it was so interesting when I told, particularly yogis, about it. You know, one yogi told me, well, you know, probably, you know, that dolphin's really sensing that you have an injury in your arm you didn't know about. <laughs> what a view I actually just got bitten by a dolphin you know it's like this whole view that everything has a hidden meaning and a hidden message you know and the world is wrapped up in this kind of wonderful feeling as somebody else said to me well maybe you were kind of like uptight and the, I was having a great time you know and maybe you were uptight and the dolphin was picking up on it you know but these kind of views that we keep formulating to make sense of the world and to kind of order the world or compartmentalize or categorize the world and ourselves. It is ditti papancha. And then there is mana papancha, which is the view about myself, the conceit of I, and the way the view of myself um, gets really formed by what we cling to, by what we identify with. And sometimes this view of self, this personality belief, the mana papancha, um, gets expressed sometimes in the way that we compare ourselves to others. You know, I'm better or I'm worse than someone else. Uh, the mana papancha that gets um, expressed in self-judgment you know, I'm always like this, I'm doing this, I'm, I'm terrible, you know. Or the positive judgment, you know, I'm fantastic, really. The world just doesn't recognize it. You know? But the manapapancha, the views of self that are constantly being formed by what we cling to in our thoughts, in our emotions, in our perceptions, that leads to a sense of I am. And then what's very important to remember or to really acknowledge, because I think Papancha is a place of great insight, is to really acknowledge that Papancha does not arrive ready-made. It's a process. And I think if we can understand the process of coming to these kind of resting places 
our views or these places of stuckness, if we can understand the process, it can kind of really soften some of that contractedness. Now, Papancha begins with contact, the meeting of the sense door, the sensory information, and consciousness. You know, there's the meeting of the ear with the sound, there's hearing. There's the meeting of the nose with the smell, there's smelling. Meeting of the thought, the mind, there's thinking. Uh, a sensation in the body, uh, the body, a sensation, there's feeling. This meeting is called contact, and in terms of how our world is created, this is one of the most important things to be really close to and to really understand. As the Buddha said, you know, on contact the world arises, and the foolish seek to pursue contact, and the wise seek to understand it. Because that moment of contact, unmindful, when we are unmindful, contact takes another step into craving or aversion and grasping and becoming and papancha. If we can really be present at that bare level of contact, those steps of craving and aversion and grasping and becoming, they don't happen. They don't happen. So in a way, it's a, a learning to be present at the moment of contact is actually learning to liberate the world and to liberate ourselves. An example, you know, of this, if you know, you take one of these journeys down the hallway past the kitchen that you do probably many times in a day. There is the sense data. There is the smell coming from the kitchen. There is the sense door. There's the nose, and there is smelling. Now, that's all really kind of just the way it is. It would be the same for a Buddha. It would be the same for the most unenlightened person in the world. That would, that would be how it is. It is contact. Now, the smell is identified. Say garlic. Now, one of the things to understand is neurologically, perception and memory have the same pathway in our brain. So perception is almost is unmindful, so quickly loaded with memory. So garlic, there's the perception. So maybe there's feelings based upon that perception. It's not going to be the same for everybody. You know, if, if you've had, um, you know, if the feeling of that perception, it might give rise to the associations of kind of the last time you were really in a garlicky place, you know, some fantastic Italian restaurant where you fell in love and, you know, you had this wonderful experience, you know, and then the smell of garlic immediately has uplifted the mind. It was actually just a smell even before garlic happened. You know, you may have another association with it. You know, that garlic has traditionally been something that upsets your stomach, you know. So you walk by the kitchen, you have exactly the same contact. But immediately the mind has gone into this proliferation of thinking about, oh no, those cooks are using garlic again, don't they know it's not good yogi food, you know, and oh, I'm going to be sick again this afternoon. Same contact, completely different associations, and the papancha has really arisen. And the thoughts, the thoughts begin to gather around the associations, you know, predicting a future. Now, this is the place actually where we learn to practice in that place of contact. Contact, perception, feeling, 
grasp, uh, craving, aversion, grasping. It happens in everything within ourselves, within our thoughts, within sounds, within the body, you know, within the mind. Because sometimes we, you know, we come out of one of those mind storms and we have a sort of retrospective wisdom that says, oh, I don't think I really needed to do that, you know. <laughs> what was that all about? But there's some way in which we get very drawn into the proliferation, into that kind of world creation of the moment. And, you know, it's, it's not just an accident that we don't. I think in this tradition the Buddha suggested, you know, there's a little bit more to this path than just having a painful awareness of all the times we fall in the hole. You know, he did talk about actually a way of coming out of the hole. And one part of really understanding and being skillful with papancha is to cultivate wise attention rather than unwise attention. And unwise attention is grasping not only at the sense impressions but at the associations with it. And wise intention is not grasping either at the sense impression or the associations with it. So it's really starting to come very close to that place where the proliferation is beginning and really beginning to see the wisdom, the wisdom of paying attention there, but also the wisdom of really learning how to let go, how to really know what is happening and to respond to what is happening. It's not enough just to know it. The response to it is equally important. How am I in this moment that this world is being born? Now part of, of course, learning to really be able to develop that wise attention is to cultivate some of the stillness and the calmness and the focus of our minds. Because it's it's like proliferation um, abounds in an inattentive mind. Proliferation abounds in an ungrounded, disconnected mind. And this is surely always one of the first jobs and the first invitations and the first challenges of our practice is to really cultivate a mind which is not fragmented, which does have an element of samatha within it. The willingness to keep attending, to keep finding simplicity. But the samatha is one part of it. It is also the insight part of it. You know, I was always really struck when I practiced in Asia that a lot of times the people I was practicing with seemed to have really kind of like a totally different mind than I had. You know, that was so weird to me that, you know, sometimes we would go to group interviews, you know, and and the Westerners would kind of drag themselves in, often complaining bitterly about their minds and everything that was wrong with them, you know, and all the things that were imperfect. And so often, you know, our fellow meditators, you know, would come in, you know, from a different culture, and they'd say, everything's fine, you know, no problem. I thought, well, what is going on here? You know, I mean, it's not like, I mean, we're living in the same place, eating the same food, we're in the same condition, so what is going on here? And I think one of the, one of the differences is that, you know, it was a deep training in this tradition and practice, 
actually the mind is regarded as one of the sense doors. You know, just like the ear is a sense door, or the nose is a sense door, or the eye is a sense door, the mind too is a sense door. You know, we don't say, I am my ear. Well, sometimes we mind if it's aching, but, but we tend not, we, you know, the level of identification that we tend, that the view of I tends to land much more strongly in our minds and in our thoughts, more than any other sense door. This is where we form the view of who I am. Now, I think there's actually probably quite a liberation in um, seeing the mind as a sense door that has sensory information just like any other sense door. And the sensory information of the mind is thoughts, feelings, memories, images, now, we might say, I'm my ear, but we never say, I'm the garlic. We would never say, I'm the garlic. Or, I'm the lawnmower. Hmm? Or, I'm the garbage truck. We're quite clear, we are not. Hmm? But we do tend to see, with this sensory information, a much closer degree of self-definition. Now, this is, you know, I've always found in practice, this is one of the great liberations of practice, is to be able to see a thought as a thought. I mean, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? Hmm? It just sounds so simple. And yet it's so often what we don't do. You know, a thought is a thought. Like the garlic is the garlic. The lawnmower is the lawnmower. Anything that we need to learn from that thought or from that emotion or from that feeling will actually reveal itself in the stillness and the calmness of our own being. Sometimes even the pursuit of insight is a kind of grasping. You know, I need to understand this. I need to explain this. You know, I need to know why this is happening. We've moved a long way, haven't we, from a thought is just a thought. A feeling as a feeling. Certainly there is much that is carried in those thoughts and feelings that deeply, deeply needs to be understood. But the pursuit of that insight is often sometimes tied up with a kind of self-view. You know, it's up to me. It's all up to me to resolve it, you know? Like the happiness of my life depends upon me finding this insight or finding this answer or finding this explanation. Often there can be what looks wholesome, you know, the, the cultivation of insight, can turn into something that is not unwholesome, but it's kind of slightly shady. You know, the pursuit of insight, where we may be grasping hold of that, ins uh, that pursuit and investing it with a certain future. You know, if I had this insight, oh, then I could be a completely sort of resolved, delighted person. Believe me, if we're not grasping hold of that, we're going to be grasping hold of something else. Unless this kind of view of self, which is born of grasping, is really understood. Have you ever noticed in our life how we just swap one, uh, one area of grasping for another? You know, look at a photo album from your life. I think this is always very revealing, you know, if anybody has family photo albums. I always find it extraordinary when I look at them, you know, because I look at these phases in my life when I was so convinced I'd arrived, you know. 
that, you know, when I was doing that, you know, oh, there I was, I was this, you know, and then I was this, and then I was a hippie, and then I was a Tibetan Buddhist, and then I was this, you know. And I think, oh, this one, you know, there you can just see this kind of one grasping after another in terms of becoming and self-view. But it it happens on a much more minute and subtle levels, I think, within our own being, the view of I am. It's tremendously imprisoning. And proliferation is what feeds view. Papancha feeds views. So learning to calm the proliferation, learning to see, to cultivate wise attention. In the smelling, there's just the smelling. In the thinking, there's just the thinking. In the seeing, there's just the seeing. It's like you're already doing enough. You know, you don't actually need to chase any insight, you know, or grasp hold of any insight within that. It is already enough. It is like we don't we don't practice insight. What we do is we we cultivate a climate of heart, a climate of mind, which is inclined towards understanding. Which is inclined towards understanding. Wise attention, bare attention, calmness, compassion, friendliness. It's enough already. Everything that is needed to be understood, every, every understanding that will arise, will actually be born of that climate. Enjoy.